This is Top Landing Gear. And welcome to Top Landing Gear Full Flaps and to part two of our full-length interview with Tony Hoskins, who's restoring a rare photo-reconnaissance Spitfire PR4 to full flight. In part one, Tony gave us the background to his project to recognise the achievements of the men and women of the Photographic Reconnaissance Unit during World War II and the fascinating story of Spitfire AA-810 and of Sandy Gunn, the pilot who was flying it on a mission to photograph the German battleship Tirpitz on the 5th of March 1942 when he was shot down. In this episode, we take you around the workshops with Tony and Paul Culshaw of Airframe Assemblies to look at how they're restoring this rare and wonderful aircraft to flying condition. And just a little production note from your producer. Uh, this is a real-life Spitfire factory. And so there is a lot of noise going on. And there is a very loud drill right at the beginning. It only lasts for about a minute. So uh, just hang in there. I'm just warning you because it scared the life out of me when I turned it on. But enjoy this. There is so much information all the way to the end. Here we are, Roy. We're in the other way. Good out here. I don't know how nerdy you want to say, just, if I just talk and then you ask and then he might know or not or anything like that. Um, so basically, pretty much everything is made in-house here. There's a few things that are sent out, uh, like some presses and things like that that they don't have capability here for. Um, but effectively, because of the volume that you're making these things in, there's no real need to be mass producing. And again, because the marks are so different for what they make, I mean, predominantly, I guess it's been Mark 9 two-seaters recently, um, but now just getting into single-seaters, so there's a few early marks coming through, including 810. Um, so it's very difficult to produce, like, 10 of anything because there's no real point because they're all very different, they're all very bespoke, and you're trying to reuse as much original wreckage as you can as well. So there might be some bits you don't need for a particular aeroplane which you can use on another one. So, um, again, everything's effectively made by hand to order whenever it's needed. So um, I guess probably the most sensible thing is to start off through the route that stuff goes to yeah. be made when it's yeah. here. So uh, let's go that way. We'll go under the, under the mess. And it will I mean, then all become, it will make sense. This looks like a Spitfire factory. We could be in Castle Bromwich right we could, now. We could, yeah. <laughs> so loads of bits of Spitfire. I mean, recognisably so. Yeah. Well, look, you've got some Frame 11 here, which is the one that goes behind the pilot seat. Um, so effectively, everything here is made uh, by taking the raw material, and these chaps are all down here on the benches here, all hand fabricating using various form blocks and things like that to basically beat material into the right shape and then using the ovens and things that you see here for softening aluminium because aluminium is so brilliant as a material for being able to change its malleability I suppose for want of a better word um, in order to be able to make it into these weird and wonderful patterns and then you carry on with further heat treatments if you need to make it stronger or softer or whatever you're doing with it so um, 
that's all these guys down here and they reference off a lot of original material so you can see what it is obviously the drawings the drawings archive has to be really quite substantial to be able to understand what you're doing with what aeroplane um, and again reusing depending on the customer's desire as much of the original machine as possible uh, to be reincorporated back so i think Largely, apart from two of the frames so far, three of the frames on 810, we've managed to put original material into every assembly frame that we've had. Um, our frame 9 was really badly crushed, it's upstairs, but, so we've had to make that new. But frame 5's got a lot of original stuff in it, so particularly with this, I've tried to prioritise with finding either using original AA810 structure first, and then after that, looking for original wartime manufacture parts, hence why I've been trying to find all these things in sheds and stuff around the, around the world. Uh, and only then do we then look to make new thereafter. But it's a big, it's a big juggle between being able to get the aeroplane finished, because if I had 10, 15 years of jig availability here, I'd try and find as much original stuff as I could. But at some point, we've got to finish the aeroplane and actually get it in the air. So there are times we have to say, OK, let's make that new, because we're not going to find that. Um, and it's trying to therefore stay ahead of the ball, which is why I keep bothering this man all the time, because <laughs> I have to say, oh, I found this, or oh, I found that, or this is the next bit. So I think we're always trying to work about five, six months ahead of where we are for drawings and problems and things that we might need to make or find uh, so that when it gets down onto the shop floor the guys are not held up by going what we're doing with this bit or what we're doing with that bit so that's largely where we're at and like you were asking about the caa side of things um every last part of the airplane you pick up whether it be a little cleat or something that's holding on a laundry on on uh, will actually have full traceability like you'd expect with any yeah. um, aircraft manufacturing project. So you get a, a job card like this, as you can see this is for the frame 11, uh, and like Tony said they'll use either pattern or drawing, we've got literally thousands of drawings, uh, and they'll have a detailed part list. Uh, so as you can see, every last component is accounted for. As Tony said, if we're using original material, so it's been recovered, we have to disassemble uh, the um, wreckage to then um, inspect all those components, yeah. make sure so, that so they so are. So you found a wing? Yes. A hole. Yeah. You have to bring it back here, take it to pieces completely. Yeah. Take everything and... out that we can that looks salvageable. Yeah. We then have to inspect those, even on a detailed list, so every component that's original will be listed. Uh, and it will be a statement basically saying that this is fine for time continued service, it's fit for purpose to be reinstalled. So you know, we have to, even with the uh, original material, uh, be very, very particular. And at the end of the day, if the CAA was to say, you know, what have you built it out of, there'll be obviously a heap of job cards detailing every component, new, um, refurbished, or, you know. And, and that includes individual rivets, does it? Yeah, even all the batches, yeah, we've got the stores over there, every last nut, bolt, rivet is all accounted for. How many rivets go into in eight? Everyone eight asked me. <laughs> Everyone asked. I think many it's something times. like I think somebody counted it's about I think it's about two hundred and twenty thousand in the wings. I think in the wings. In the wings. I don't think anyone's bothered with the other stuff. Um, but uh, yeah, it's uh, the problem is materials have changed over time. So you know, back then surface treatments of things were not um, ideal. You'll see on some of the original stuff that's upstairs that uh, they didn't really bother with corrosion treatment or anything else. But of course, everything now is rigorously treated to make sure it's going to last as long as possible. And of course, a lot of the, aluminum, uh, sorry, the rivets back then had high magnesium content. So when everyone starts talking about, oh, these Spitfires are all original, 
you can get original Spitfire now and you get your hand behind a skin, you can almost peel the skins off if they're original rivets. So virtually every Spitfire has been re-riveted at some point. Most have got new main spars in them as well because these things were just not designed to go this length of time. Uh, you know, we're 80, 85 years on for a lot of these aeroplanes. So they were built in the last few weeks, really, weren't they? Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the, the service, um, I haven't actually done it for the aeroplanes. I know for the pilots in the PRU, it was 13 weeks was your life expectancy. I think the aeroplanes were a lot less. I mean, 810 lasted six or seven months, mostly because the weather was really horrible at the end of 1941, and they had several months they didn't fly. Um, but, but, you know, by sheer luck, some ended up going into training, but often they were lost within three, four flights. So, um, you know, that's why it's very much a bit so, as we found going through the wreckage. Because equally, another reason for pulling all the wreckage apart is that, you know, there aren't surviving examples of a lot of these aeroplanes. So particularly with the PR4, we know it's a highly modified Mark I. It's got some Mark V bits in it, it's got some Mark II bits in it. Well, unless we go through and work out what they are, <laughs> then we're not going to find it. And actually, even looking in factory photos, we found a drawing the other day and we were like, oh, we need an extra hole on the front. And literally, we had a photo of a production line with the fighter Mark I and the PR4. And you can see the difference on the web straight away. And you go, ah, now that we've found the drawing, we know this. So there's an awful lot of going back into things to make sure because we don't want to come to plumb the thing together and then go, it don't fit. You can't get it through the hole um, because there's no hole there. So, you know, um, that's why the amount of hours of work that goes into the research and preparation for building one of these things is absolutely huge. And is that detective work quite satisfying? Or is it frustrating? It is when you get the solution. Yeah. I think when you've got the problem to start off with, and we, we have a problem at the moment, as I said, with a couple of frames, and we're having to reach out to other people who have got wreckage from recovered PR4s, because a few have been dug up over the years, and the idea is, is that you go and find these people and say, look, have you got this or have you got that? Because there's some, we've got some dimensional issues with one of the drawings in that the information's actually been left off. The original drawing is missing. It's got all these wonderful things about this size, but it doesn't actually tell you where it is in relative to the datum. So we need to go and find a bit of wreckage because we haven't got that surviving bit of wreckage in what we've gone through to be able to get the information from. So if we go and find someone who dug one up in 1980 and has got a couple of bits hanging on their wall and they go, oh, measure this, <laughs> then we can do it. Or we then try and find out if it's the same as a PR11 or a PR19, whether it carried on through the series, because there are a couple of surviving PR11s. One in Oslo is absolutely original um, with the idea that we can go to them and say, can you just measure this? And there's been a number of cases where we've had to reverse engineer from parts that are held in museums in order to be able to give us the data for this. And what's really sad, I think, is that we're going to get to the end of this project knowing everything about this particular mark of aeroplane. But unless we build another one, there's no point in having it. So, um, yeah. The timeline of this seems to have been remarkably swift, if, if you stay on, on target, because well, the, the wreckage was recovered in 2018, you yeah. took it on board in 2019, and you expect to have it flying by 2024. I mean, normally these things seem to take decade upon decade. It, it depends on how much you want to reuse and how much... Um, you want to get into it. I mean, if you go and look in a two-seater, largely they're very clean and clinical. They don't have an awful lot of original bits and pieces in it. Um, if you were to go and find one and you wanted to basically build a Mark 9 off the shelf and you had unlimited funds to throw at it, I think you could probably put one together in about three to three and a half years. If ever, all the stars align, if you've got jig availability, if you've got manpower availability, and if you've got all the parts and the systems to go into it. And about three minutes out. Uh, yeah, three to three and a half, yeah. I'll let him finish the Lillisher, and then because I promise you it won't pick up with me. No, he can hear you beautifully. <laughs> what, what's he doing here? Uh, it's Lillishing, so it's just taken off the edges of what he's doing there. Um, well, yes, we'll see when we go past the individual benches, the bits they're doing. So he's blued it out with engineering blue, and then there'll be a mark in it, 
and then you'll be taking it down to the mark so that you've got it accurate as to where it needs to be. But it, it, literally, you see how everything is hand-done here. All the spars are handmade here. Uh, it's literally some of the complex pressings that are sent out just for ease of not having to bash them out around the block, basically. But you'll see all the stuff that they'll do um, as we go around. Going back to your point uh, about research, we had a very interesting one the other day. And again, another unique aeroplane. Um, not a run-of-a-mill Mark 9 or something like that. It's uh, all known. Um, we were doing a similar sort of thing like your uh, frame 7, 8, 9, where we had the, um, the fair lead on there. We had um, a similar sort of thing on this other aeroplane. We had the drawing. Ah, okay, so the drawing says it's got to be nine inches from the datum to this particular fair lead. And then when we looked at the other ones, it had it going uphill. We're thinking, that's not right. All the other ones that are drawing. Looking at the wreckage, we found that the fair lead was still on the wreckage and it was six inches. <laughs> so we find this all the time between, you can't rely on all the drawings. You might have the drawing, but they might have been superseded, not applicable to that particular model or whatever, well, and some variations. But might have a drawing upside yeah. down when they made the bit. <laughs> yeah, that's right, yeah. But this is the thing, you see, this is where it comes into with restoration over the years, because if you want to restore the aeroplane, how much of the original do you use, even if it's not to drawing? We'll show you some bits upstairs that are, you look at the rivet lines and they're all over the place. Yeah which you wouldn't do if you're making new. So, but if you can use that part, you only have to recreate it to the original pitches of things, which are not ideal, but then you're losing historical elements out of it. So same thing, wreckage is really important, even if you can't use that particular bit, even just for referencing and patterning and to see how it's been put together, because let's face it, they were chucked together very quickly, relatively low skilled labor to do a job. They still work, they still survive, but that's the best way of learning how to do it. I mean, I only know of one guy left who worked in the factories in the war. He lives in Salisbury, and he's great, but he did specific jobs, so not, not across the board. So the only real way to tell and find out if you're doing it right is to look at the records that you've got or compare to other people who've got records. And that's the large thing. Going through 810, most of the wreckage that's left here is all of that that's specific to the PR4. We've already been through it, and anything that we know to be standard Mark 1 and unchanged, we're like, fine, we can't use it. It's gone back to my workshop to go into store. Um, and if it's usable, then it's still here to be reincorporated. But if it's standard, then we know, okay, we can go to the Mark 1 drawings, and that's the bit that we need. But if it's. Can you have to guess at anything? No, you can't guess at things. There was times that we've looked at something to go, what's the purpose of that or what's the purpose of that? And then have had to go and research and find because so much, actually, here's an example. So they had to fit extra fuel tank gauges into the aeroplane. We found that our aeroplane had a Mark I panel in it, a very early Mark I panel. Yet if you look at the pilot's notes, it goes, oh, these aeroplanes weren't fitted with four fuel tank gauges, they only had three. But well, we recovered the instrument panel from the wreckage. It had four tank gauges in it, so you're like, right, okay. But it basically meant that the clock at the time that they had, they weren't using the little clocks, they were using the big clocks. So we then found a photograph that showed that the clock then moved down lower on the frame. They took it off the instrument panel and mounted it somewhere else, because of course it was critical for navigation. But then we found a drawing of which we had the drawing for a voltmeter that mounts off the bottom of the clock mounting, but we didn't actually have a drawing for the clock mounting. And I found one in a museum in a cockpit section that was there. So we literally had to go and get them to measure the gauge and do as I mentioned. We made one out of cards. 
to work out how it all went together so it all fit and matched the other drawing. And then from that card, create a template, and from that template, create the drawing to then, through the processes they have here to therefore release that drawing, we can re-engineer and reverse-engineer a drawing for a part that otherwise had never been seen before. It's a big old process, but only if you want to make it that detailed, and I want it as detailed and as spot-on as this aeroplane can possibly be. The general thing on the Spitfires that Sony was uh, just mentioned there about using the original wreckage is the latter marks of Spitfire, the later in the war, they were, as you said, thrown together. That's one of the things that we find is a little frustrating, that you might have an original part that would go again, but you find that the, the rivets have gone off the edge of the member, or there's not enough land or something like that. It's not built to the aviation standard that we are expected to build it to today. So it would have been rejected had they built it like that today. It's like, oh no, what are you doing? Yeah. You probably sack the lad, you know, for you the standard's just not high enough. So it's that compromise between using original material, but it obviously has to meet the criteria that we build them to today. So there's, there's often a bit of a compromise. Okay, we've so, moved down the factory a little bit. To give you an idea of some of the annoyances with things on the Spitfire, so for example, there's hundreds of these in the flap system for this. Now you look at how intricate it is to form this. And I know you can't see it for those that are listening, but it's well, a, just describe what so it this is. This goes around a tube. So it's basically this. This then takes these are the ribs that go onto the uh, for the flap system, yeah. uh, and then basically that fits around there to go onto the tube to attach it to the tube. So you've got two two different parts here to attach one item, which you know today you would make in composite or you'd you'd press it out as one piece. But all this has to be hand formed, and it's you know that's a whole set a bag there of what 20, 30 different little individual pieces. Yeah, nice, nicely done. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, that's what has to be produced. So, effectively, the guys that are here working in this area of the, of the factory are hand-producing all of these individual little bits to make it into kits. These kits then go into the boxes, which then go down onto the shop floor to be assembled in jigs, even if they're smaller jigs that are done on a bench, before they then go into the larger jigs to become part of the aeroplane. So it effectively becomes a production line but for individual aircraft. There's nothing that is being massively repeated here because you get later metal style ailerons, you get the early fabric ailerons, and you get ones like mine that are in between, and they're all different. So you're having to make stuff specifically, which is why there's all these yellow cards everywhere of packs of information as to which aeroplane this belongs to, where it's going, what market it is, when it's been made, and it, it covers all the material details, who's done it, so who can you lean on if it doesn't fit when it gets six months down the line, <laughs> things like that. Thankfully that doesn't happen. Um, but uh, yeah, all of this area, all these wonderful presses and fly presses and pillar drills and all these wonderful English wheels and fittings and everything that you see around on the desks is all done to try and produce these items to then go and be used, particularly upstairs and then later on on the shop floor down there. I've got a particular eye for authenticity and I don't think this pilot chair is actually original, is it? <laughs> well, that's going to be for... James has just dug out a sort of Victorian looking sort of dining chair which is in the uh, workshop here but it does have a seatbelt attached to it. <laughs> it's an inertial wheel seatbelt which I can't fathom the reason for that but anyway. You, you can cut that out Roy. It's probably the naughty chair probably. <laughs> um, well look so here's examples of things so look 
So traditionally, this is what you would expect to find in a Spitfire that's sat in a museum all this time. There is absolutely no corrosion protection on this at all. Just describe what you, we're looking at oh, here. Sorry, so we're looking at a wing section here. It's one of the main ribs. In fact, it's rib one with these top hats here, which is the aft section of the wing nearest the fuselage where it would go uh, and you can see that largely you know there's no paint on it um, there's some mucky nastiness on it there's a lot of white powdery bits and pieces this is typically what you see is that white powder from magnesium is that the um, rivet uh, no it's, it's it's aluminium corrosion that's basically there um, and you know you've got steel bolts through here so you get dissimilar metal corrosion between the two because again they weren't treated with any of the new chemicals and things that we have now so when ours go back together we want it to still be here in 80 90 years time and serviceable whereas this was yeah. is it going to last a few weeks sort of thing yeah. so lots of this stays here as pattern and reference again as per mark if you find bits of Spitfire it's often really good to know which Spitfire it's from because then you can say ah you know it's a mark 5 that was built then so you can go to the drawings and you look at what was applicable at the time so it might have a different modification state yeah. and all of this we have to justify to the CAA when we're going through to say we've used some bits of that mark 5 some bits of that mark 2 we've got this 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 and this um, and therefore we can say that actually this all fits within what it would have been produced at the same time. If you found that piece, for example, would it be your aim to reuse that if you could, or is that yeah. beyond... Oh, absolutely. That, that's not beyond and you'll help. see when we go round, we've got loads of stuff that we've been pulling out of 810 yeah. that you would think would never, ever go again. Yeah. But aluminium, as I said, is a wonderful thing. So, effectively, if you look at some of these brackets, uh, let's say like that bracket that's in there, yeah. that's a fairly thick aluminium bracket there. Um, as long as that's not torn, there's no reason why you shouldn't be able to use it, as long as if it is corroded, it's not gone through a certain depth. So you take all of that apart, and even if it's got like a little bend in it or something like that, as long as, again, it's not torn the material, it goes into the oven, soften it up, they rework it, straighten it up, put it on all the surface tables, and then either normalise it back or heat treat it again to get it back to the heat treatment it should be, mm. and then it's serviceable. That's why we subject to inspect. Yeah. But of course, it's also a way up between the hours of labour of taking something apart and cleanly inspecting yeah. versus how long it actually takes to make a new one. Yeah. Um, it's therefore more expensive to rebuild an aeroplane that reutilises more original parts yeah. than it but is that's to... that's down to the owner or whatever, who, how much completely. originality yeah, they want completely. in the aircraft. And we can cover, we can cover the process of building Spitfires and what you yeah. need to get going later on yeah. quite happily. But. Uh, uh, the question which must make you roll your eyes, but I'm going to ask it anyway, is when does it cease to be a restoration and when does it become <laughs> a replica? Okay, so that, well that's changed a lot in the recent years. So traditionally up until probably about seven or eight years ago, as long as you had an identity of an aeroplane and you could put your hands down to the fact that this was the aeroplane, then the process you went to to register the aeroplane was relatively simple. The issue with that then came is there's been a number of cases where an aeroplane's been registered and then someone turns up three, four, five years later and goes, well, actually, I've got that, or I've got this, and then where does it come? Because if someone's got all the original wreckage and then someone else has got a plate, it then starts to create a problem. So about five, six years ago, this reared its head. And effectively, the CAA turned around and said, okay, we need to change the way that this happens. So what you now have to do is you have to apply to the Civil Aviation Authority and say, I have got this wreckage. You then have to substantiate exactly what you have, where it is, if anyone else has any interest in it at all, and if there's a lot of stuff missing, what happened to it? So I've registered a couple of aeroplanes for people recently, and we had to go and find wartime photos of the crash site because we only had the fuselage, didn't have the wings. 
Um, and whilst the identity goes with the fuselage, they didn't want someone to turn up and say, well, I've got all of this. So we had to find wartime photos, the fact that the wings were on the surface and there's all the Germans standing around it and everything else. And you go, well, okay, well, the wings were recovered at the time, so they're gone. Yeah. So that's not there. But then when the aeroplane was dug up, this was the recovery team. And then this person had this and this person had that. And then we went to find all those people and say, have you still got bits from it? And they go, oh, yeah, we still got some bits. Great. Would you sell that back or get that into project? So we then had to go around all the recovery team and round up as much of it as possible so that basically we had even more of the aircraft. Then go back to the CIA and say, right, this is what we have you don't make the decision as to whether it's a restoration or a replica. That's now taken by the CAA. So the CAA will do an individual assessment of the particular wreck and say whether or not rebuilding that will constitute it being a replica or a restoration. Now, the rules are, obviously, it has to be serviceable. So you could reuse or remake 99.999% of it to make it serviceable. Um, and some people may choose to do that. I have not chosen to do that. Um, but equally... If you can't justify that you've got the majority, I mean, you couldn't basically walk in with that, with a plate attached to it and say, I'm going to register that. You could years ago, you cannot now. And that's why it's become a lot more harder to rebuild a lot of these aeroplanes because, you know, all the wreckage that came out in the 80s, and there's been some wonderful recoveries that have been done 15, 20, 30 years ago. Well, God, no, it's 40 years ago since the 80s, isn't it? Jeez. Um, and uh, they've been just dispersed to the wind. And it's pointless because, you know, they, they, you know that 30 people have got bits of it and you're never going to round it all up. So, unfortunately, that's one that is never going to end up being rebuilt so it's a lot more difficult now to do it it's a lot harder to get through the process i mean often it will take months now whereas before it was literally filled a form in i don't know if any of you bought airplanes before you fill a form in you put your name and address you pay the 80 quid and uh they change the registry to it no it's months and months of work now and they can come and assess it as well if they've got any concerns over it they can turn around and say actually we're going to come and physically look at all the wreckage to make sure you've got what you say you've got um and therefore wreckage that is potentially rebuildable and you have a substantial quantity of straight away starts to become a very valuable thing particularly if it's a mark that can be converted to a two-seater for example because obviously the two-seater market has boomed so if you have a mark 9 that's absolutely fantastic you can't convert but you can convert the mark mark 8 but you can't convert a mark 5 or any of that sort of thing so you're then starting to look at airplanes that got individual histories and that then changes the value on this as well so Effectively, what you're looking at is to have as much of the fuselage as you can, as much of the equipment as you can. They really like you to have the engine, although I don't know really of engines that go again after they've been smashed into the ground. Um, but they like to know that you've basically got, a bit like an air crash investigation, if you've got the front, the back, the left bit and the right bit, and as much in the middle as you can possibly find. If you manage to find all of that, then you're on to a winner. Uh, if you are struggling on that aspect, then it's a problem and you'll see people on ebay going i've got a spitfire data plate <laughs> and um and they think it's worth hundred thousand pounds and yeah. going it's a real shame you haven't got the bit was attached to and all the rest of it that went with it oh no my mate's got that we melted yeah. it down um and then that's that's the end of it so that's why whilst there are lots of spitfires in build um it's not just as simple now as going out and going i need to find a spitfire project i need but, to find but this ultimately that's actually a good thing Yes, absolutely. Because for this particular Spitfire, you're ending up with something that is actually genuine. It's not a replica. Yeah. It is a restoration. You'll, you'll see when and we... you know that you can stand by that aeroplane. Oh, absolutely. Is... And you'll see when we go and look at it in the jig, you'll see all the part numbers and original part numbers that come out of the aeroplane. You'll see all the bits that we've got upstairs that we're recovering bits and pieces from and stuff that has been mashed beyond all belief. And you're going, no way. And you actually take it apart. And you suddenly realise that there's four or five little fittings or little machine fittings and stuff like that in the middle. And you go, well, that would go again. And you'll see, particularly with the firewall, 
Hey, buddy, how you doing? <laughs> Sorry about that in the middle. <laughs> Join in. <laughs> he wants his lunch. That's what he wants. <laughs> He's only come for his lunch. Um, so uh, you'll end up seeing that, you know, the, the big parts of the firewall are obviously big sheet material, which are brand new. But then you look at all the bits that are attached to it. And if you've got 150 parts and you've got 140 are original, but the, the three big bits that are the big sheets are brand new, everyone goes, oh, it's brand new. And you're like, it's not. Look at all the stuff that goes with it. Um, also, a lot of the aircraft that flew during the war were restorations already. Oh, yeah, yeah. Because they were been been chopped and changed and, That's it. Uh, and everything had been replaced oh, on yes. them anyway. Well, it's just like if you had a, if you had a factory-built Mini, yeah. it's changed the wheels, changed the tyres, probably changed the seats, been repainted twice. You know, at what point did it stop being so original? The Trigger's broom has been used many times, I think, on the podcast, but it is yeah. the <laughs> Changed the handle three times and the head four times. Right. One, of, one of the things I was uh, sort of saying earlier um, before we started recording was, uh, does... Does part of the uh, the problem we have matching parts and the sort of maybe lack of compatibility uh, <laughs> between what you would think would be compatible result from the dispersal of the manufacturer after the supermarine factory yeah. was bombed because Pretty it literally went out to garages and garage forecourts and farms and yeah. you know they were throwing it together as quick as they could didn't no one thought about uh, whether one part would match another and, another and machine if you think you I mean you, you look unfortunately viewers can't see it but you look at the size of the jigs that are here which are largely based on the wartime jigs you build one of those jigs in Southampton you build another one in South Hampton as well and then ship it off to Yeovil to be built there. Different temperatures, slightly different floor level and everything else. So you get a Yeovil built wing and a Southampton built wing and you try and swap the two, it's not going to fit. No. I mean, you might just get it to go by oversizing a lot of bolts and things like that, but uh, you know, largely, and this is why all of this is done here, is that the jigs here all match. So a wing built over there in the wing jigs will match a fuselage built over there and it will go together. Um, 810 was built at Reading. It was. Next to the railway station, as I understand. It was. Yeah. Um, however, <laughs> um, a lot of the components, because everything, as you've seen, is, has got numbers on it and it's yeah. got stamps on it. Um, so we know that most of the back end was built in Gloucester, by the Gloucester yeah. Aircraft uh, Company. The uh, firewall was built at Heston by the Heston Aircraft Company. Uh, we've had uh, a lot of the internal frames were actually built here on the Isle of Wight um, by a shipbuilding company that's uh, actually GKN, now own their factory. Um, so there's bits, which is nice in a way, because it means that Parts made, on the Isle of, places, yeah, yeah, yeah. parts made on the Isle of Wight are actually now playing a role on the Isle of Wight 80 it's years later. Yeah, yeah, it has, yeah. yeah. So, um, yeah, it's built all over. And there's long lists of all the subcontractors that made bits and pieces. And literally, I think it was a case of the Reading Dispersed Factory was, we need to build these aeroplanes. And they were just collecting lorries. So they would get a lorry of firewalls from Heston. Right, select the next one, put that in. Well, have we got any of these? And, and have we got those? Yeah, and make it fit, basically. <laughs> Uh, which is we do slightly better than that nowadays. <laughs> but again, because we're reusing as much as we can, uh, there's obviously very flight critical bits that we want to change and make sure, but they're made in a way they can be drilled off against original items so that you know that it goes. So um, it's just the standard that it was built to at the time we have to make decisions on. And so not always you see this wonderful wreck that gets pulled out of a lake or something and everyone goes, well, most of that's going to go again. <laughs> so you look at it, you haven't got a clue. And yet there's bits that we've looked at you know, we looked at our ailerons that were absolutely mashed up. Thought no way, and um, opened it up, and actually the majority of the internals has gone again. The aluminium is still bright. The paint really? was peeling off, and still bright, shiny wow. aluminium underneath. Yeah. Wow.
But they were actually fabric ailerons originally on this. So we think, yeah, so they were pre-war fabric ones that had empty sat on a shelf, and of course they now need to get these aeroplanes out the door, and production at the time had gone over to the metal ones, but if you've still got a stack of fabric ones, then there's a, there's a repair scheme to be able to modify it across and, and aluminium skin them to stop the fabric ballooning on it, which is the problem they had early in the war, um, then you reuse it. So they did. And you can see where it's been chopped around and everything else and riveted up and uh, to be used again because, you know, it's saving you time. You can get it out the door quicker. And that was the whole thing. Production had to beat the German production, which was pretty fabulous. So, um, Was this aircraft originally built as a Mark I fighter? It was ordered as a Mark I fighter. We've got an awful lot of bits on it that show that it's a Mark I fighter and should have had an early Merlin III fitted and all the systems that go with it. The difference with the PR4 was that it had production photo reconnaissance wings. So you couldn't retrofit fighter wings onto the PR4. So the wings had to be built from scratch as reconnaissance wings. Um, but it's very obvious from the wreckage that we've recovered that we've got an awful lot of fighter stuff yeah. in the front of it. And we can show you on bits and pieces when we go and look at it, um, the bits that shouldn't be there if it was just a production PR4. But because it was very early and a total bitzer, I mean, Paul's had nightmares with this because we've had, we've had bits of wreckage. You take the drawing numbers off and you go, Mark 1. And then you go to the mod book for the PR4 and it says, ah, oh, I use the Mark 1. But then it comes this once you've done that so we then had to get other drawings in and going oh my god how have they mismatched it around because in theory it was just using bits that they had around the factory and throw it together and and the difference being that the the fighter wing would have had guns and ultimately cannon probably not in the mark one but guns and all, all the stuff for the ammo there yeah. whereas in the pr that was all was none of that was there it was all fuel tanks it's fuel tanks in the front and then it had an oil tank in the uh, left hand wing um behind the spar um because at the time the merlins were leaking so much they hadn't put the big chin on the front of it like they did on the the pr11 to put more oil there so they were chucking oil into the wing and uh, and pumping that through and of course you also wanted to try and get some heat out of the radiators to keep the cameras warm as well so you know there was lots of extra ducting and stuff that went through there did, um, did it ever fly as a fighter in combat no no it never did so it was ordered in uh, july of 1940 as a fighter in the second batch of 500 that the air ministry wanted from supermarine um, but they selected at the time because of the need to build up the photo reconnaissance uh, force, shall we say, they selected 229 of those 500 fighters to become production uh, photo reconnaissance aeroplanes. It's a lot, isn't it? I mean, it's almost half of the total but, output to be PR. But the attrition rate, you could have three, four a day go. <laughs> so, you know, 229, you're going to get through them fairly quickly. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, of course, with the lead time, so obviously production, with the order starting in July of 1940, mm. you know, the fuselage, the engine was mated to the fuselage in August of 1941. So production probably started on those systems. Well, we know from the, the early stuff that's been made, there was a big bitzer. But it probably went into the jigs in sort of spring of 1941. Mm. Is this original? That's original. I'm just looking at a lovely little bit of what, explain what this is. I can see part of an RAF roundel on it. I'm going to cover over that because <laughs> you're not supposed to know that. Um, so, so yes, um, effectively, there's an awful lot of pattern parts here. Um, and, you know, what best to reference than the actual pattern parts that you need? So, um, as Paul said, these are the, the access hatches that go into the fuselage that these doors then fit into. Um, so this has been brought down to reference so that this will fit if you copy the drawing but make it to reference the, the actual original, then you get to see all these little details of you know, which rivets go in here, how is it done, which way round does it go? Because you'll see, you, know, you can only just see the rivets coming through by shining the light, but the fact it's all been dimpled down and things like that. Um, but you know, are any of these external? That's a plate that's been added, so you can look at it and go, 
shouldn't have that, forget that bit. That's a repair, is it? No, that's because someone's oh. put the registration oh, of the aeroplane on the back of it. <laughs> oh, right, okay. <laughs> so you know where it lives. Um, but uh, yes, so the, um, you know, it's, and it's little things like, you know, the door, you know, you've got rivets here, but obviously if you're going to have the door fit, you've also got to take the backs off so they don't stand out like these ones do. Yeah. You need to be able to fit it. So looking at the finishing and everything that has been done from something that's original is the way to put these things together. Could I just feel, I'm not going to look at the registration, could I just feel the weight of that? Yeah, so it's about, what, 18 inches by 18 inches square, this? Um, that's the radio access panel. Yeah, but they're largely the same. I think the battery panel, the radio panel, we've got three doors in 810 because it obviously had a camera on the left. You also needed to get the rear camera, so they put another one on the right, and then you had one down the back. Um, but effectively, they would modify original bits and pieces. So I think when I send you the drawings through, Paul, there's literally a half-moon yeah. hole that goes in there with some reinforcement around it and a bit of draft excluder. Um, to stop it condensating up. But. We, uh, we came across one the other day where um, it had a completely different part number. Um, researching what the changes were, it turned out it was stenciling on there. So uh, it was actually a Mark 1 door, but was given a later Mark number, oh, just really? literally because there were some adaptations made, so it was largely paint, so there was nothing uh, different in the really? structural thing. So it's quite uh, interesting working our way through. I'm picking it all. Yeah. And we, we don't have... Uh, a complete library of drawings from Supermarine uh, where every drawing exists. So uh, the patterns are absolutely invaluable uh, to fill the gaps. We will we'll have a drawing of that door, but like Tony was saying, it doesn't actually tell you the detail of all the riveting and things like that. So the patterns are absolutely essential uh, for us to put it together. And is, we've got obviously. Is there any sort of master database being built about the Spitfires out there? Or is there no point in doing that because each one is going to be different? Uh, obviously, all the drawings are down to marks, so mm -hmm. the drawings that we have um, tell us the the differences, and the thing is, trying to unpick it as you go through, you might have a, a mark 14, and it will still have parts in there that are 300, mm -hmm. uh, say a fuselage of 30027, which would be a fuselage mark 1 part, but it would be in the mark 14. <laughs> if they haven't changed it from the original design, it would have gone in. So right. when you're looking at the configuration, you might have mark 1 bits, mark 5, mark 9, whatever going through to become a 12 at the end. So it's, it's the configuration is uh, something that's requiring constant research. Mm -hmm. Uh, and can be a bit of a headache. So We've got it in our wreckage as well. The bottom of frame nine that we've got upstairs also fits in with some of the air scoop that goes underneath, and we went through it here on the floor, and so we know we've got PR4 parts in it, mm. which are 353. We have 329, which is Mark II, uh, and 300, so Mark one in the same bit, and that's why the wreckage is important to pull it apart and go, because it's that transfer time. 1941, Mark five is out. Uh, Mark five had the Merlin 45, the PR... Four had the Merlin 45, so you've got a lot of Mark 5 mods on top of a Mark 2 set of systems in a Mark 1 airframe. Um, and it's a bit of a mind juggle to work it out, but that's what's fun. Fortunate with, uh, with 810 is that there's a, um, a sheet one, um, the 35327, uh, which is the um, PR4 fuselage. Uh, we actually have sheet one, which is the general arrangement, so it tells you where it differs from the Mark 1, so we actually know exactly what part number the yeah. uh, frame 5 should be, and we've got a drawing for the frame 5 and all the adaptations that were specific to the PR4. So when it comes to the configuration, thankfully, because of that one drawing exists, along with the wreckage, we can piece it all together and know exactly how, how she was put together. 
It's so, very so on this little panel I've got in my hand here, we've got three little spring-loaded latches. Yeah. If those weren't salvageable, would you? F I mean, these these are quite. I mean, obviously you're making a lot of detail, but this yeah. is this has got an intricate part. Would you be looking to to make that from scratch? Yes, we we've just made a batch of those recently. Really? Uh, yeah, lots of component parts, springs and brass bits and steel bits, and, and as you can see, when they're all uh, put together, they're also welded as well. Yeah. So uh, yeah, quite involved. We've made literally uh, hundreds of those recently. And is anything <laughs> available off the shelf at all? We have some use. limited stock of things off oh, the shelf. Well, as far as buying bits, yeah. uh, AGS, rivets, bolts and things like that, you can buy old stock. But when yeah. it comes to actual components, you want to ask this man, he's good at finding bits <laughs> that uh, have been sat on shelves as new old stock. For example, there's no current version of that latch uh, No, on, no, they're available. kind of unique. You, you no, can't use no, anything that's no. currently being produced for no. something else. And actually we're having to start getting to the point of starting to make nuts, bolts, etc., etc., yeah, really. because of the amount of stuff that getting through. There's some bolts that, you know, went out of fashion with probably the Nimrod, really, and a lot of that stock was, you know, disposed of later on and melted mm -hmm. down to make into other things. So, um, you know, trying to find some of this old hardware is getting more and yeah, more tricky. More more you won't find a single Phillips head screw on a thing. <laughs> Everything is as it needs to be, yeah. uh, which is one of the joys, but also one of the pains of building <laughs> one of these things. So, um, the, the wreck of 810, you reckon as when they found it, it was about 80% 80, 80 of the original? 75 to 80% of it, yeah. So if you imagine if you sat in the pilot seat in a Spitfire, everything below that seat, we recovered pretty much complete. So both wings, all the bottom of the fuselage, um, back as far as where the tail join is. Of course, the skins on Spitfire, they're very thin, particularly when you get to the top and when you get to the back. So a lot of that had corroded out. A lot of it had been very badly crushed because when it had come in, it had, it had gone flat onto snow. Obviously, the snow had melted. It was above a peat bog anyway. And then, you know, the summer comes, it sits on top of the peat bog, it snows again, and then you get another five metres of snow that just crushes it and pushes it further into the peat bog. And you repeat that eight, you know, 77 times over and you end up with a very flat spitfire. But, well, I mean, you'll see from the spars, actually, they're not particularly flat, but they have been crushed where it's, it's hit the ground. And it hadn't caught fire, it? Yeah, it had caught fire, but the, 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 one of the eyewitness reports said it was on fire on the way down. The tail had come off, so it was basically flipping, you know, longitudinally as it came down, which is why it's hit flat, pancaked flat. The, the impact area was very, very small, and you could see where the engine had pushed in and just pushed a bit of earth up against some trees and when you looked back you could see where the newer trees were because it had come in down through trees and obviously it chopped all of them and you had new growth afterwards so it was really interesting to sit there eating your sandwich afterwards going oh, wow okay I can see what happened here and of course the Germans had gone through to pick through the wreckage as well so we found a big pile because they were looking through for intelligence because I found cowlings on the on the ground on the top and you're going airplanes don't tend to reverse into hills <laughs> you know why is the cowling at the front and then below that was a big pile of spitfire because they've basically been pulling stuff out to try and see what they could find looking for intelligence and things like that and they knew it was a spitfire and they'd captured a reconnaissance spitfire about eight months earlier down in france so they knew that it had very limited range so the reason that sandy gun was questioned for, for so long was that um they thought the raf had a secret operating base somewhere in norway because from their intelligence they had, there was no way to get a Spitfire from the UK to Norway. But of course, the reality was the wreckage was sitting there, all the fuel tanks were in the leading edge of the wings, but of course, because it had gone in, it caught fire, and it's all buried, um, they weren't to know that there's fuel tanks in the front of it. So he was questioned for a lot longer than normal because they suspected there was a secret base there. Um, but yeah, they knew that a Spitfire had crashed, and it was obvious that we could go to the wreck site and see where it had happened because 
the pile was literally on the driest bit of land outside of the peat bog, which some moose had made into a moose nest sort of thing, uh, and it was covered in moss and everything else. But it was a really good and interesting real-life uh, case of looking at what had happened there and where people had been, and then it had just been left for the next 70 years. But the tail was missing, because the tail had come off. So we had to do a completely brand-new tail. And unfortunately, like I say, most stuff on a Spitfire is built left and right, not top and bottom. So we would have got a lot more out of the bottom, frame-wise, if it had been built top and bottom. But what we have done is we've recovered as many little brackets and fittings and all this sort of stuff that we have out the bottom of the aeroplane. And you'll see when we go up, we managed to get the camera ports out the bottom as well, which were flat. And now these guys have very basically worked it back into a sort of 3D shape. Um, and yeah, that's why as much goes as possible. Just going back to the Germans then, picking through the wreck, had Sandy done his photographic mission? Was he on his way back? And presumably they wanted to know what he'd been photographing. So did they, were they able to then get hold of the film? Well, we actually found the broken cameras in the wreckage. Um, so yeah, we found, we didn't find too much of it, but we found a lot of the casings. Um, so they'd definitely been smashed at the same time. Um, he had actually finished. So from the combat port we had, he was allegedly flying circles around Trondheim Harbour, quite close to where the Tirpitz was. The Tirpitz was his objective that day to go and find. Um, now the nature of taking photo reconnaissance photos is you don't fly in circles, you fly in straight lines. <laughs> so we know from his letters from when he was in the prisoner of war camp that he had some engine issues. The Merlin 45 at the time, not a brilliant engine, just come into service, not massively reliable. About three flights previously, he had had some rough running engine issues over the middle of the North Sea. So from taking from his letters and reports that we've got, he'd taken his photos and he's now deciding, do I go and belly land this thing if the engine's going to pack up? Do I go to Sweden, which is really not that far from that point of Norway across, where it's neutral, I'm going to lose the aeroplane, lose the photos, but I stand a chance of getting back in a few weeks' time, or do I go for it and try and make a crossing to go back down across the North Sea and get home? Now, from the combat report of the German who shot him down, we know that they were climbing high, saw him circling, and then he set off down to the southwest, heading back towards the UK. So he only decided that it was going to be okay he was going to give it a go and he started shooting off to go home um, at which point they then bounced him and got him down but he managed about another 70 80 kilometers away from Trondheim before they finally shot him down so you found the cameras the Germans left the cameras there but but did they get the film did they well, I, did I, it <laughs> did it matter that they presumably they needed to know what he'd been photographing what was of interest because that would then alert them to the fact that within a few days, presumably the Tirpitz would be under attack. Well, of course. I mean, I suspect very much from the state of the cameras that probably any film that was in it had been very much exposed by the fact that the aeroplane had been broken apart. But right. um, they would have known you'd have been there on reconnaissance. Um, that, you know, it's a very different Spitfire. It's painted blue, for starters. Mm. It's, not, it's not green and brown or grey and brown. Um, and, you know, they had a listing post in Christiansund which had picked up an aeroplane coming in. Well, the Germans had only just managed to move the Luftwaffe into the area to protect the Tirpitz because it was a really rubbish place to go and put a boat, really. <laughs> it's, you can't supply it with fuel, we can't supply it with food. Um, so every time you set sail, you've got to put back into a big port because it's just literally hidden in a fjord somewhere. Um, now, obviously, they knew we were looking at it and we knew we wanted it. And there's, of course, all the Arctic convoys that are going past. I think PQ-17 was the one that was sailing at the time. Um, so they knew we were going to be interested in what was going on. So if they set up a listening station looking out towards the North Sea and they pick up this sound of an engine coming from the direction of the UK, 
it's probably going to be us. <laughs> so the fact that the Luftwaffe had only just got there, that's why they scrambled people in advance to wait for him. Uh, and it was fairly obvious what his target was going to be. It was either going to be the airport. So the modern airport at Trondheim is one of the old fighter bases. There's another one, actually, that's now a shopping centre within the centre of Trondheim, which is where the 109s took off to shoot Sandy down. Uh, and the main high street through the middle of the shopping centre is the old runway. Um, yeah, it's fabulous to go there. There's one hangar that's still there, uh, which shows in the wartime photos. And it's now like... Um, like big yellow storage company not wanting to mention particular <laughs> names of you know, other other ones are available um, but uh, yeah that's uh, that's the last surviving elements of the runway so you know there were some fairly hot targets there at the time and he was going to be in that general area and that's where they waited for him which is very sad and Tony just going back to my original original question of no no it, it's just there's so much to cover isn't there but of that 80% of the wreckage how much are you able to use of that 80% in, in the restoration? Well, the, the tail is obviously completely new, although most of the equipment that I've got going into the back, I've managed to find original wartime. So all the control levers, we've got some original um, uh, elevator and rudder trim gear that's going in. Um, I've got some original tailwheel parts that are going in as well, although we've made a new tailwheel tube. Um, so the back end is mostly new. Um, the fuselage, we recovered an awful lot from the bottom of the fuselage. We've got quite a few firewall bits. We've got quite a few bits in frames 8 and 11. Um, we've got a lot of tank base structure, uh, like the fittings and brackets that hold the fuel tanks in. I've got lots of those. Um, but most of the equipment that is going in is all original manufacturer as well, because it's just not possible to make, like, you know, brake pressure regulators and all that sort of thing. As a percentage-wise of the fuselage, we're probably talking... 12, 15% probably overall. It depends if you're looking about it by weight or by numbers of parts. I mean, as I've said, you know, weights of lots and lots of little brackets and fittings and all the, you know, support um, uh, pieces that are on the firewall are all original as well. But then, you know, you could have a sheet uh, that weighs, you know, the same as all those bits together as one item and that's what's brand and new. The bits that you're not using are you going to be kept as, yeah. a, as a sort of... Everything gets kept, nothing gets disposed of. We get a lot more out of the wings, and that's work that's currently ongoing. That's why it's very difficult to guess what it's going to be overall, because we've only literally started in the last, probably, what, week and a half, two weeks, to actually strip the wings down to see what's going to go again and what isn't going to go again. So, jury's still out on that, but there's a lot of structure to go through, and you'll see when we go around. I mean, we obviously replace all the flight-critical parts of which there's a lot of like critical parts on the Spitfire um, but you know lots of intercostals and brackets and doublers and things like that is what adds up over time to what you're actually managing to get out of it you need them all um, you know they all serve their particular part but you know like there are big channel pieces well let's say for example the Adorons we've got a lot of the internals out but the Adoron spar is broken off about a foot from one end and six inches from the other so you've got to make a new one for that one piece, but everything that hangs off of it can be original. Uh, and obviously we reskin it with new skins and things like that because a lot of the history is actually in the skins. That's unfortunately it's not here now. We, I had the wing skin that had the RAF roundel on it oh. still. That's now back in my workshop, unfortunately, um, because I can't keep asking these guys to store lots of wreckage here for <laughs> years on end. Um, but no, every, nothing gets removed, nothing gets disposed of, everything is kept and everything is reused. So whilst in a way, in a way, it's a shame to often take some of these big bits apart. I mean, the big section of wing that they've been working on at the moment is like the wing walkway off the starboard side. So it's, and you see it full of the bullet holes, it's got all these things, but you know there's stuff in there. And you go, well, there's a piece of history, it's great as this big lump that fits on the table, um, but you want to be using it. That's what it's there for, it's there to fly again. So we end up taking it apart. So you end up with volumes more material because it's suddenly all come apart and it's not together as it was, but you're reusing as much as you can. Um, but no, it's, everything is now crated up at the moment in my workshop in Sussex that we're not using here. So there's a little bit of fuselage stuff left, which is being referenced 
floor here. Everything else has pretty much been recovered, but all of the wings are here because we're still trying to work through all of that uh, to see what we can use and what we need. And what about the cameras? You said that you, you recovered some of the cameras. What, three cameras on board? There's three cameras on this. There's two vertical cameras, two 20-inch vertical cameras. We recovered all the heating elements off the bottom of it. And so we knew what the camera fit was of the day. We knew what the camera fit had been on the previous day as well. So it had one oblique uh, camera out the side. So we're recreating that with... Um, I managed to go and find some original cameras. Um, they're currently being overhauled by some apprentices in Glasgow, uh, which is a derivative of the company that made them originally during the war. So they're... Is it Vinton? Are these Vinton cameras? Or... Funny enough, yeah. You mentioned yeah. It. So it was... Um, it well, was... they still make camera they equipment. do so yeah. originally Williamson's made the cameras originally and then when there was a huge requirement for it to go out the company outsourced a lot to Vinton Vinton ended up moving into more film and audio work and stuff like that but the military side was disposed off and eventually became Talis and Talis Optronics well Talis Optronics are up in Glasgow they do a lot of things for submarines and eyes in the sky and all this sort of thing um, but they're historically linked therefore to uh, the reconnaissance camera. So we've taken all, I managed to find original, unrestored, in some cases, and some that need restoring cameras up there. And now their apprentices are working for the next year to overhaul all the cameras in the systems, put it back together again. So we have working camera sets within the airplane. Whether or not we can get someone to make the five inch film is another, <laughs> another matter, but it will be completely restored back to original with all the original equipment all in the back of the aeroplane. That's incredible, because no one's going to see those cameras when this aircraft's like, I know it's there, that's yeah. the thing. I mean, you'll see, there's some stuff that I brought with me to show you guys later, um, to the level that I've gone to, to try and find accuracy with this. I've recreated the, the little badge that goes on the front of the propeller spinner that you will never notice or ever see, but it's there. I'm having all of the, within the, um, Forward fuselage, if you sat in the Spitfire about where your left ankle will be, down behind the fuel tank is where a lot of the uh, electrical systems and things go. There are plates that go in there that detail all the electrical stuff that you never, ever see at all. I've had them all remade exactly to that point so we can put it in and know it's there, but you're never going to see it once the fuel tank's in. But it's, I want it to be as original as it can because it's the last example of it. And if someone's going to look at this in 50, 60 years' time when I'm long gone and want something to reference to how did they do this, if we can recreate using the information we have now to be 100% accurate, I mean, the only thing we're actually going to change is there was a camera control box that would sit about where your left knee was for switching all the cameras on. Um, we've got to put a modern radio and transponder somewhere in the aeroplane. So that's going to be a detachable top. So if you sit in the aeroplane, it looks like it's got all the camera controls in, but you'll be able to take the top off and there'll be a modern radio and transponder there. So when we go to a show, that, that sits somewhere else. And then the, if we are static at the show, you put the top back on and it looks like it was in the war. Wow. So the, the pilot would select which camera he wanted to use each time would he and, and how would he activate the camera and how would he know what the camera is seeing so <laughs> it, it's, it depends on a lot of who you talk to if you go and talk to the veterans there's different things they wanted to basically get in and get out of there um, the idea being is most of the control you had was over the rate that you wanted to take photos because obviously these guys are taking stereographic photography because the cameras are misaligned ever so slightly so that you could get a 3d image when you put the two together and put them through a stereographic viewer um, 
Now, of course, depending on how fast you're going and what the cloud's like and everything else, because if you've got big open spaces, you're a big target for the anti-aircraft fire. You want to get out of there. But equally, if you are also trying to fit in with lots of cloud and you can just see the target through there, you want to go snap, 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 and get as many as you can. So they would basically set the rates that they wanted to take these photos at, which would have a lot of criteria depending on your speed, height, and all this sort of thing, in order to get the overlap that you wanted. Because again, you've only got, say, 500 shots in a, in a, in a thing. If you've got three targets to take and you spend all 500 shots on your first target, yeah. someone else has got to go and get the second and third target, so they're critical. So you're trying to work out how much can you get. Because if you want to get a nice overlap of photos as you go, you want a certain rate. If you get too much, they've got too much overlap, then you've wasted a film. So it's a very mathematical thing that you had to decide then and there what you were going to do and that was all set through a controller that was based on the instrument panel in your book when you read about the flight reports that sandy did and and, and the other t um the other pilots they, they talk about oh i've got some good shots on that do they know they got good shots or do they <laughs> they could they couldn't see what the camera was seeing i take they, it they couldn't see it, but what would normally happen is you get back the camera film would go out. Have you guys seen uh, Operation Crossbow, the film from yeah. uh, things like that? Okay, I've rewatched it last night actually. <laughs> um, and you see the guy coming out and literally canister off the top. He goes straight away. Yeah. They do a preliminary development of the photos, look at it and go, yeah, this is good. Yeah. And then they look at it and go, ah, oh, this is really good. Print it, dispatch rider, straight off to like the cabinet war rooms. Yeah, well, Medmanham first, and then you know to work out what was going, and then straight into the intelligence thing because it was real time. It was live intelligence. You know, Enigma takes three days to. Well, once you've broken the code to get through the volume of messages, unless the Germans are saying, in four days' time, we're going to do this, it's all past info. This is today, what's happening now, and equally, you need weather reports, you know, from your flying, you know, what's the weather like over Berlin? Okay, we're only going to know if you send someone there, because you can't phone someone up in, you know, Prague and go, what's the weather like where you are to see if there's a warm front coming? You know, so these guys were trying to get intelligence data on Met as well to bring back and say, well, I saw this, I had cloud layer at this. You know, the PR4 carried two temperature gauges on the left-hand side of the cockpit. None of this exists anywhere. We've got it in some photos. I've managed to find original gauges. In fact, I've found three now. So bearing in mind they only made... 500, 600 of these gauges in the war. I've now got three of these things. Um, but that was taking inside and outside temperatures. So they could make notes of this, again, for condensation layer. Yeah. And they had a rear view mirror, not for looking for Germans, but for looking to see if there was condensation coming out the exhaust behind, because then that was the telltale little white contrail going over, and they would change. So they would make notes of what the dew point was and all this sort of stuff, so that they could then give that to the Met guys. And they're going, OK, at this point, the temperature's this and that, and you can work out if there's cold fronts and all this sort of thing coming. So, yeah. It's a lot for a Spitfire PR pilot to deal with, which is presumably when the Mosquito came along, it was a two-seater. So it was you could have one guy. Am I right? Yeah, that's right. Yeah. So you've got a nav in there as well and well, an observer. What's quite amusing is in the book, well, I think one of the things that um, Sandy says, they're looking at me going to the Mosquito. I'm not going with some baggage. I want to be all on myself, basically. <laughs> well, this is it. There was a huge amount of pride in that because it was so covert and no one really knew about it i mean i spoke to a guy the other day he's 103 in may absolute wonderful guy and he basically he said someone walked into the mess one day as they're just finishing training they went who wants to go to the piu and everyone went what's the piu and he went don't know so, <laughs> but they fly and he said quote word for word he said they fly blue spitfires and he said well that will match my uniform i'll go to that <laughs> and he spent the rest of the war flying reconnaissance in the far east but you know he ended up going down to um cairo and they gave him a map to get to gibraltar and they basically said, go down to Cornwall, head due south, keep going, go just past Santander, keep looking for the rock, land there. Landed there, handed his maps over, and then they went, he said, oh, I've got to get to Cairo. And they went, 
oh, we haven't got any maps for Cairo. So he had to go, literally, yeah. He ended up with a school atlas. He went and got a school atlas, but because the weather was so bad, he was trying to go along about like 10,000 feet sort of thing, and it didn't really work. He wanted to be up at 30 to get the school atlas. Got totally lost and ended up somewhere down in Africa. Um, amazing guy, absolutely amazing. But, you know, they were trying to get all of this information that they were bringing in, and actually a lot of them were very proud because they couldn't talk about it. Um, you talk to some of the veterans now, they didn't really appreciate how special it was until after D-Day. There was a lot of times they were being sent to take a photo of a bridge or a field or, you know, this, this, this and this. And they're going, why would I be taking that? And then they realised later on, well, that was the glider landing grounds. It was all being picked up for this. And then they could tie it all together. But particularly the early part of the war, unless you're on the low-level ones for the French ports to basically look for landing craft being built up, you know, most of your work of going to a factory or a city was lost on most of the guys. Marshalling yards, it seems to an awful lot of marshalling yard photos. Yeah, yeah. and uh, um, you know, looking for shipping, basically. Yeah. So U-boats is the U-boat import, it's the Tirpitz import. And that's where the big problem came with Tirpitz going to Norway, is because in December 41, it was being refitted. And they're going, oh, we can see what's happening with the guns, we can see what's happening with this and this. And then there was a run of bad weather for about six weeks. And you'll see from our social media, I normally put out on this day, and you see there's big blocks where 810 and Sandy are doing nothing, because the weather was just appalling. And it was either appalling here, or it was appalling over Germany, or France, or wherever they were going. And then when they eventually went back out in January, they went, great, let's go look at the turf. Oh, it's gone. Where's the turf? It's gone. Oh, I've got no idea. And they were panicked and they couldn't see where it was. They couldn't find it. And then basically the Norwegian resistance messaged and said, someone's turned up with a wacky great ship here. You might want to come and have a look at it. And then, but they couldn't tell them where. So they said, look, it's near Trondheim. So of course these guys were trying to find all this stuff. Um, and it was, it was very well hidden. They photograph or something, wasn't they? They just, they just took a photograph yeah, of, of a fuel. Yeah, original photograph with me, actually. And um, you can just, it's in the book and you just see this. It's still a strange shape, but it's not natural. Yeah. And it's big. Yeah. And, um, it's, and if you go to where the, the docks are, because the, the, the pontoons for Tirpitz are still there, and you can actually see from the photos that these are about a quarter of the way from the front and a fifth of the way from the back. And then you go and stand there, look at it, and you go, wow, you know, that's quite a good exercise routine, just jogging that distance front to back. It was a big ship. Yeah. It was a really big ship. But should we go and look at more bits and pieces? So... So Tony, we've moved okay. back downstairs onto the um, onto the factory floor, and there's some really recognisable bits of aircraft here. And this is 810. Is this it? is 810. So um, we have a, a short forward fuselage jig here. Traditionally, they've used the full fuselage jigs, but obviously demand is quite high. In order to move things through, uh, airframes have recently invested in this forward fuselage jig, which picks up on the front spar fittings and then back here on the rear spar fittings. So effectively, and some of this work was done during the war. You often see there's photos of. Um, Spitfires in repair factories and things, and they've been split at about frame 10 because they can graft at this point, this is where the rear longerons attach, um, you can actually graft the back end of aeroplanes on. So this is what happens here now. So the new production system here is that the complicated work, which is always the forward part of the fuselage, gets done in the short jig, whilst two other aeroplanes are being worked on at the same time. And then later on, when this is completed, it will move over into the later jig, and then you just attach the lightweight tail unit that goes on the back, and it goes from there. But you can see the complexity. I mean, I showed you upstairs um, frame nine, that very crumpled frame nine. Well, this is frame nine here. So my crumpled bit that was a few inches high is all of this rolled into a ball. So, and that's why, and you see here, these are the rubbing strips that you stand on when you get in, so that's your foot support, and basically your feet then go down through the, uh, the centre. This is where the instrument panel matches here, so you see we've had the, 
all the placards that we've been making up to get it right for the age of the aeroplane, so for the particular time. The placards changed on the earlier ones, they then changed on the later ones, so we've researched it meticulously to make sure that everything is there. And what this now does is this sits in as the heart of the aeroplane because really the firewall and the carry-through spars that you see there is where the main wings attach. It's the, it's the beefy bit of the machine. And then off the back of that, you have the longerons that come out to this point to take the cockpit. So the seat, this is frame 10 here. So the seat sits in front of 11, which I think marked there. So that's the back of the cockpit section. So this would be that cockpit door would fit in here. So this is where you stand to get in and then step on there and sit in it. Fuel tank sits in front of this green frame that's here. And uh, you know, even down to the colors, we've done correctly because certain <laughs> factories painted certain bits that that others weren't. So, you know, in a lot of cases, Castle Bromwich would paint the insides in a different way to everything else. So this has been painted exactly as per the wreckage that we had to match where it was green, where it was silver. Even though no one will ever see this once the aircraft's no. reconstructed. But I know it's there. <laughs> and that's why I said I want it as accurate as it can possibly be. Um, so we've even included, and as we mentioned before, there's a lot of Mark I fighter parts on it. And you can just see on the back of the firewall on the right-hand side, there's some weird shapes brackets and fittings there, um, that was for mounting equipment that was only particular to the very early Merlin fighter Spitfires, but it was still included, we found it in the wreckage. So whilst that was deleted on the PR4, we know it's there, so we've re-included it so that the original fighter stuff is still here as it was, and you know, someone could look at it and go... It will never be seen by anybody. No, um, but no, you know it's there. The yeah, but you know it's there. Yeah, exactly. Unless you take the fuel tank out, you're never going to know that that's there. But you can start to see, you can see from here, you see all these part numbers. Sorry Rob, running away from your microphone. So when we were talking about the originality of stuff, you look at these great big sheets of material here going, oh, it's all new. When you start looking, you start seeing all these detailed numbers here. These are all original bits and fittings that have come off the original wreckage that we recovered. And it was in several bits. It's, yes, it's got new modern synthetic fireproof material because the original was asbestos, but you know, it's all been separated out and pulled out. A lot of these machine fittings down here, all these spaces, everything that goes into this, we've recovered as much as we can. So, you know, whilst people look at it and go, oh, it's all new build, you're looking at the big three sheets that are new build. And we've, we've changed these corner pieces here because these are massively structural, um, very important part of the aeroplane. Um, but as much of the internals as possible has all gone again. And the same with a lot of this, there's brackets on the, there's brackets and doublers on the green frame on frame eight there, that are all original. Um, that we recovered. There's a lot of these brackets. You can just see some of these anodized brackets that are sitting on the back of the firewall, those sort of L-shaped brackets. They've come out of the wreck as well. And they're the bits that tie it together. So all of these things, when we find it, they go off for non-destructive testing, uh, either eddy current or magnetic particle or X-ray in some rare circumstances. But anything we can use again, we will reuse again and then treat and test and then put back into the aeroplane. But again, that's all gonna have to go in, be drilled off, and then come back out and be painted and treated and go back in again. So you end up building a Spitfire three times over um, in order to get it right. Whereas in the war, of course, you threw it together. But that's why, you know, it costs what it costs to do these, unfortunately. Um, but getting it right and ensuring that it's right is the most important bit to me. So even down to now, I'm doing an awful lot of work firewall forward for the equipment that goes on because they changed it over time with different engine installations and then different carburetors mean different throttle lay shafts and all that sort of thing. And we're having to work through all of this wreckage that we have, picking out these minute bits and cleaning up 
numbers to be able to give us the mod state of what it is. So we know what it carried, what it didn't carry, uh, and that we can then put it together from there. Because it'd be awfully embarrassing if we come to hang an engine in the front and something doesn't quite fit or line up um, because it's the wrong you know, pneumatic system set up for the, for the aeroplane. Um, and we have to justify it all to the civil aviation authorities we go. We write something called an airworthiness approval note that details all of this information that we find as to how we justify it and, and do it. And as you've probably heard, we were talking earlier about the modifications. So as you can see here, we've got a couple of holes here. Well, we've only got two holes here. Now these holes have to be enlarged because what we found is this is a very early pre-war front end that the aeroplane was carrying. Um, but uh, there was a modification when they went to constant speed units, which of course was the throttle unit that had to pass through, that this then changed. And we've managed to find the drawings, but we're missing information off of it. So we're now going back through the wreckage and other people's wreckage to see what they can find, to then say, well, that's where that goes. Otherwise, if we can't find it, we'll have to make the throttle and then laser it up through down through the holes where we know it needs to go. And then that will give us the reference from there. But we need to exhaust all the other options that we have ahead of that. Uh, to actually find the original drawing material because someone's got to take responsibility and someone's got to make the decision on it. Um, but yeah, we get as much as we can done. Um, we're just at the moment, so you can see over here they're putting together a lot of the rudder pedal structure, um, which is this, all this square tube work that goes in here. So the rudder pedals mount through there. Um, they come back through here, so they're sliding pedals that go in there. And this is all being put together, patterned off some original. Um, again, with the drawings that we've managed to find for this particular mark, so they can reference. And then uh, we've just had some pressings come back that were outsourced, which are the uprights, these upright channels here, that go through for frames six and seven to join up to the upper datum here. And really, this is where the structural integrity of the Spitfire comes from. It comes from the firewall, these upper datums and these bottom long joints and all tied together once skinned become immensely strong immensely strong one of the things that certain enthusiasts always get quite excited about is the is the spade grip so so the stuff actually in in the cockpit itself yep. in terms of that what do you have that's original and do you is it something that you would consider remanufacturing if you needed to so i haven't got um the original control column from 810 um, I did actually manage to find a completely original control column from a Mark V. Uh, so similar, similar year, the aeroplane was um, a very similar registration to 810, so it was within a couple of hundred, so we know that it's correct. Uh, that's come apart, that's currently going through non-destructive testing. Uh, we have to remake the central tube because that was corroded out, but most of the fittings will go again. So we'll have an original control column from a Spitfire in it, um, just with a replacement tube. Um, I have got an original spade grip as well. Um, now we've had to do a lot of research because of course 810 didn't have any guns but we did find that the gun buttons still fitted to them because it was made up by a subcontractor. No, the, the camera control was actually on the throttle. Yeah, um, but because it was made up by a subcontractor, so Dunlop made the spade grips and um, basically they were just supplied out with a couple of tubes coming out the bottom of the grip and the photos we've seen of the early PR Spitfires still had the gun button spade grip on it because it, why disassemble it, just chuck it in, you just don't connect the pipes up. So it will still have the gun button with the, the early, early ring on it, which I think was anodized red, not the brass one that everyone sees in, in all, the, all the things. Um, but yeah, so we've got that, so we'll have a control column. That control column actually attaches to these tubes here that go through. So, you know, this is all of the structure coming together for this. Um, and then undercarriage selector would go about where that frame is there, mounts off of that. Um, but as you see, a lot of this, it all gets in, it all gets drilled off, it all gets pinned together with these special pins. And then once it's done, it comes back out. 
gets anodized or you know chemically treated and then and you see how it then builds up into this again so in a lot of these other fuselages that are going on here these have been repainted they're now being put back in and riveted up and then it has to be drilled off and dimpled because all of these skins even when we drill these for the skins you then got to dimple the skins and recess this back so it becomes a multiple you know process time and time again uh, to get it put together with the amount of Spitfires that are being restored now, there will come a day surely where there are no longer any original parts left. <laughs> or have we got there already? We're getting pretty close, yeah. I mean, it's not to say that there isn't stuff out there. We're still finding a lot. It's becoming a lot harder. I mean, it used to be, you know, when I got into rebuilding Spitfires for other people eight, nine, ten years ago, uh, it was a case of going, well, if you need electrical bits, you go to so-and-so, and he's got a barn of stuff that he bought from the ministry 20 years back or 25 years back. And you start phoning these people up and they'll start going, oh, no, I've only got a couple of boxes left. And you go, oh, crikey, I'll have those both boxes now. So then the next person phones up three years later and goes, oh, you got any more of those? Oh, no, so-and-so had those off me X number of years ago. And that's where it's all catching up to now. We're slowly finding that the usual sources and points of contact are now, mm, I haven't got that anymore. Uh, you occasionally find some real gems. I mean, I found, uh, recently I got some of the priming system um, still un unissued brand new we found a canopy rear canopy recently never issued never drilled off uh the young lady who was well, a young lady at the time we worked in the factory basically half inched it when she finished at the end of the war uh, and then kept it entire life and I, I bought it off one of her relatives um and she kept it and it had been kept in the shed um so it'd been out of sunlight so the perspex was as good as it was 80 years ago we won't use it again in case it's brittled but you know we'll disassemble that because unfortunately some of the again there were no chemical treatments on a lot of the hardware so that needs to be done again but you know all of that will go including the fittings we'll take as long as they don't shear they'll come off and they'll be cleaned and cad plated and put back in so again but it's using original bits but we are now getting to the point where we are having to start to look particularly systems parts i mean as you can tell from this you can re you can reuse an awful lot of stuff but it's also you can pretty much remake anything that is sheet metal so if you redo that or you machine stuff that's easy enough you know these carry through spars they're all brand new because they're flight critical items i wouldn't ever want to put an original set of carry through spars into something um, but effectively you know we can uh, produce most of that but it's systems bits that are becoming a problem i mean this to be really boring again, this had a very, very early brake regulator uh, for the differential steering, only fitted to the first couple of hundred Spitfires. We found bits of it in the wreck, so we know that it had one. Um, I only know of about three surviving units of these, of which one's in the uh, RAF Museum Spitfire. Uh, I've got one. Uh, and there's one that belongs to a private individual uh, that I saw on his shelf the other day when I went there, um, <laughs> which I spied. Um, but, you know, later on they went to this little boxy unit, which was the same all the way up to, I think, like the Vampire still had it and things like that, uh, and the Meteor. Um, but finding that original equipment, and that's not the sort of thing that you can really remake. They're complex mechanical items. We basically have one big problem with a voltage regulator at the moment. Um, they're carbon pile voltage regulators. The later ones that came in from, like, end of 1942 are 10 a penny. You can go and buy them for 100 quid, 150 quid. Not a problem at all. Whether they'll be serviced or not, who knows. The one that was fitted to 810 was really early. We found broken bits of it uh, in, the, in the wreck. Um, I know of a couple of surviving ones, but neither person wants to let go of them. So we're potentially, if we can't persuade someone to let go, we're going to have to make a voltage regulator entirely from new, uh, which is a big old task.
you know, you're looking at a lot of money for that. Uh, and even if I find an original, it might not be serviceable. We might have to still make the contents from you. Um, so it's trying to find things like that that become a problem. So we're doing a lot more system work now because, again, I could keep on looking, but I don't want this to take 20 years. Um, so I have to weigh off between getting the aeroplane done, not holding up the work that goes on here, because I want to be able to keep on. Yeah, got an end date that I want to do. We want to hit the anniversary of the Great Escape, or at least the anniversary year yeah. of the Great Escape, because you're not going to fly an aeroplane in March. <laughs> it's pretty <laughs> rubbishy weather. Um, but you know, we'll be flying that summer of 2024. So that's 80 years since Sandy Gunn was murdered. It's 80 years since the Great Escape. It's the same year we hope to have our memorial unveiled in London. Um, so there's an awful lot happening. Um, we can make it, um, but it means that we have to make some decisions at some point to say, well, whilst you know, I'm still looking for, I've had two original rudder pedal systems. We've recovered some parts from it, but not everything. Um, there are some challenges with that that you know, I could end up finding another three or four sets and still not get the bits. And you end up getting to the point where, you know, if I'm spending money each time on something that I'm only gonna recover a couple of bits from, you've got to weigh it up against the cost of making new. Um, and therefore, you know, there are decisions we're having to make now about making new system equipment. I mean, I've got all original instruments, we've got all original undercarriage selector, we've got a throttle unit, which about half of it's gonna go again, but rather than look for another one to combine two, um, we're going to make the new bits. I've got about three seats, which will make one good seat out of it, so we know that's okay, even though we're going to make the new resin portions again. Um, and then it's working through everything else. Who have you got lined up to fly this? So, got a couple of people. Um, so, <laughs> um, I'm sure you've all heard of Al Pinner, the ex-officer commanding about the memorial flight, so he's the chief pilot of the project. Um, so Al's going to be heading that up. He's a very experienced Spitfire man. Is it Shuttleworth? Is that the plan? Um... The hope is. I mean, the, the issue with it is that um, that's a trustee of the collection decision because they decide who is there at the museum. Uh, we would love to have it there. Um, we've asked for it to be considered to go there. Mm -hmm. I, they are very up for that happening. Mm -hmm. But obviously, the last conversation we had pre-COVID, um, when we had an aim for when we wanted to finish it through. Now that we're a lot further along and we're a lot more solid on the when it's likely to fly, we can now actually have proper discussions about it because they only have a certain amount of space, but you know, obviously it would be a very big attraction for them there. Um, so we would very much love it to go there. Um, I think they'd very much like to see it there, but ultimately it's neither my decision nor the bosses. It comes down to the board of trustees as to whether they want to hanger it and give it the space in the museum uh, for it. Um, there's a lot of links to Shuttleworth. I mean, Richard Shuttleworth was killed flying out of Benson. Um, one of the guys who flew the De Havilland Comet that was there was an ex-PR. Well, he went on to fly PR during the war, so there's a photo reconnaissance link to that. Uh, and also, you know, who doesn't want to have a the Great Escape Spitfire at their airfield where it can be in a museum that people can visit and also it can fly from the site and it's sympathetic engineering there you know they know how to operate aeroplanes um, there's two other guys set up to fly it um, as far as display flying goes um, both of those are Shuttleworth pilots <laughs> as well um, and then I will be hopefully flying it a reasonable amount myself wow. but I'm not, an I'm not interested in display flying it's not my thing um, uh, my hope with this aeroplane is that when this has to go to a show for the weekend I'll go up there on the Thursday or the Friday and I'll, I'll drag it out and I'll take it to where it needs to go and whether we turn it upside down once or twice on the way is entirely up to that and then I'll wipe the oil off of it, put fuel in it and then hand it over to whoever wants to throw it around for the weekend and then at the end of the show on the Sunday night I'll hopefully take it back to where it lives and that's, that's as far as I'm concerned. I was very fortunate, I did um, 
a trip. I took a, a two-seat Spitfire with a colleague of mine up to um, Top End of Scotland a couple of years ago. So I got five hours in the Spitfire in oh. one day, which is brilliant. And I'm up to about, I think, about eight and a half, nine hours now. Uh, but all in the bigger Spitfires, not, not this little one. Um, so there's a program that Al's putting together for all of us in the project. Um, we're all at different levels of currency and, and, and different experience on types. I've only got a little bit of Harvard time, not a lot. Um, but I've got an awful lot of tailwheel time. Um, so there's a brush-up system going through over the next couple of years so that we all get up to the same level. The nice thing is because we've got two-seaters now, you know, we can all basically do all our other preliminary training and then we can hire a two-seater for half a day or a day uh, and all go through that system. And then hopefully, in an ideal world, because Al will do all the testing, once the aeroplane's gone through the testing, ideally we'll position it to somewhere sensible, big airfield somewhere, and then we'll get one of the two-seaters in the same airfield and ideally in the same day. Everybody goes to the two-seater and then everyone jumps in the single-seater and we go from there. Who pays for all that? <laughs> that is what I'm working on right now. <laughs> um, no, there's, there's obviously an awful lot of... Uh, there's a lot of interest in the aeroplane uh, from a lot of companies. Are you, are you marketing it as the Great Escape Spitfire? Is that part of the thing you're doing? Effectively, it's... We call it Sandy Spitfire because he was obviously the last guy who flew it. Yeah. Um, but it very much represents all of the people who flew reconnaissance. Mm -hmm. um, you know, most of the guys who flew this particular aeroplane were killed in the war as well. Mm -hmm. only, only two of the seven who flew the aeroplane survived the war. That was a shocking thing about, about reading your book, about this band of guys together. Yeah. And then one by one, they all sort of didn't come back. Yeah. And then by the end of it, I think there were two, as you say, two of the original sort of guys that started off together. Left alive. That's it. And the, one of them subsequently died. Yeah, that's it. So, you, <laughs> so one survivor out of the whole sort of card of, of the, the whole flight, basically. That's it? right. I mean, on the basis of fact, it's the um, it is the only aeroplane that's left that's linked to anybody from the Great Escape. Yeah. I mean, um, there there are a few rounds that supposedly. I mean, there's one that someone said Roger Bushell might have flown it, but there's no documentary evidence that he ever did. It just happened to be on the same squadron at the same time, um, but there's no records of him having done so. Um, but this one, we know, it was a great escapers. Aeroplane. What was Sandy depicted in the film? Uh, yes and no. You see, this is very difficult. The the I tried with one of the last surviving. <laughs> Uh, individuals from The Great Escape to actually find out what happened. He was in the same room as Sandy Gunn that night. And I wrote to him and I said, look, would you be able to answer some questions? Didn't hear from him for about a month. And then I got a lovely letter back from him and he said, look, he said, long time ago, he said, I'm 100 years old. It's a time that I don't really want to go back to. So if you don't mind, respectfully, I'll decline an interview. And I said, that's absolutely fine. But of course, when he passed away, I knew at that point that that information had gone forever. Um, and... That was a great shame. Um, but what we do know is from, because um, a lot of, he was very highly thought after, and a lot of people went to see his parents after the war, and his nephew is still alive, and he collects an awful lot of the correspondence. So there were people going to visit his parents, um, and they wrote down a lot of it. And we know he was in a tunnel collapse. Now we don't know whether it was a suitcase or something like that that caused it, but he, there was one tunnel collapse during the course of the escape. Um, that is depicted in the film when they are building the uh the tunnel um so you could say that there's an element to that but he was a digger uh, and he was in tunnel tom originally which is the one that was discovered by the germans so he was he was in hut, what, hut 122 uh dug tom from there tom was discovered everything was put on hold and then when they went all out on tunnel harry 
he was moved across to that, which is what then earned him a place in the draw, because obviously they wanted to get 200 out. There was about 600 people in total that were involved with the escape. Well, they prioritised those that had the best chance of going, which I think was the top 30, which were German speakers and things like that. And then the remaining 200 was a draw, but you were prioritising the draw depending on what your role had been. So. Um, tunnelers, map makers, forgers, uh, you know, costume people had all been prioritised differently. So there were several different draws. So he went in the drawers from the tunnelling team and he was selected out from that. But, you know, he was a young man. He was 22 when he was shot down flying this. Uh, and he was 24 when he was murdered eventually. But, you know, he didn't speak German. So the only way that he could get to the northern ports, because he couldn't, didn't want to risk going on a train, because he couldn't speak speak the language. So he got underneath the trains and sat under the freight wagons on the bogies uh, and rode the train. And when you look at the train maps from the time, you effectively have to go to Berlin before you then go back up. So he was heading from Poland in towards Berlin, <laughs> underneath the trains, then caught. And we think there's an account that he gave to um, a chap who ended up retiring to Canada, um, who, from the letters, is not massively clear, but the inference from it was that this other chap who did survive and wasn't murdered was captured the day after Sandy Gun at the same place, which is a little place called Bernau, which is on sort of northeast of Berlin on the way out to Sassnich, not far from Sassnich. But um, there was a marshalling point there, so we suspect the freight train stopped and he was then crossing to either another freight train or something when he would have been challenged and obviously not been able to, to answer and he was picked up there. So, yeah. Horrendous. Um, but, uh, but yeah, so that's basically what we do. So forward fuselage gets built in here. Um, if we then move on to the far one, because that's a single seater, not the two seater that's are next. The, are the rigs different for two seaters and the single seater? Yeah, ever so slightly. I mean, you can use the jigs for the same, but obviously it's the internal bits that go in between. Um, so you can now see how lightweight the back end is, effectively. It's the spine, the rear longerons here, and then these light pressing frames that go in with the brackets to pick up. Obviously, you've then got lots of stringers and other little brackets that come off of it, but you can see in comparison as to how little work goes into this compared to the forward end. And this is why this is relatively quicker to put together once it goes in the back. Most of the work is all in the front. And as you see on this one, the front has already come out again because it's gone through the process that we've done over here of getting all this built up. And now that's gone off for etching and painting and then it will come back in and be attached properly. And then you start the process of skinning the whole of the back end. We'll walk around that way, I think. Um, so we've got, well, a fairly complete-looking fuselage here of yes. a, a two-seater. This is a two-seater one. So this one has come out of the jigs. And now you see from the, the, the standard of the work here, I mean, obviously these skins, they're all overlapped. They're all trimmed in. They're all dimpled as well. And again, they're painted on the inside. So you go through this process of building all of this up here. And then you start to put the skins in and you drill them out and you pin them in and then you take it all off again, and then you dimple it all, and you put it back on again, you dimple that bit again, and then you take it back off again, and then you etch the inside and paint the inside, and then you put it back on, and you rivet it back together again, and you obviously have to rivet it in order, because obviously this skin fits over that skin, that skin fits over that skin, and that skin fits over that skin. So that one first, that one second, that one next, that one there. And it also goes front to back. So you, it, the skinning of it is a massive process. Is that gonna be a problem or not? Oh, okay. Um, so the skinny of it is a massive process and then you have to start doing all the things like, you know, you've got the canopy runners, you've got the canopy rails, you've got all the rollover protection and then you've got all of the wheeled work that goes in to streamline it, all of that's the fairings for everything else and that all has to fit to jig so that when things get made up, they'll all go together. But if you have a look down the back of the fuselage, you see the most iconic view of a Spitfire. 
let's just have a look at this. Oh, looking right the way down through the fuselage, all the way to the, the engine firewall, I think, possibly. Wow. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a beautiful thing to behold, isn't it? Isn't it? I mean, yeah. that's the classic look down a Spitfire view, is all of those <laughs> wonderful frames with all the holes in it yeah. and everything else. Even though it's a bare, empty shell, yeah. but you can see how much work goes into all of this in order to get this right. And then this is before, I mean, where the fillets go down there, that's where all the systems have to go out to the wings. Well, none of that gets drilled off here because a lot of it's very specific depending on the equipment fit that the particular aeroplane had during the war or what it needs to do now. I mean, particularly with the two-seaters, you know, we all know the two-seater is a post-war modification of the Mark 9, originally with a Mark 8 starting it all off. Um, but effectively, you don't need any of these combat systems now. They would have been set up for guns for training post-war, but obviously you don't need any pneumatics for the gun cocking now, but we do need fuel supply. So if this particular owner has a certain tank set up on the aeroplane, then that will get plumbed into this. So there's still huge amounts of work, months and months and months of work of fitting in, even when the systems have been overhauled, it all needs to go into it. So there's still a huge amount of work here. And that's why here, this is where the main shell and structure of the work gets done and why we are trying to, because we obviously have to take our turn in the jig. Um, it's probably going to be this aeroplane that's behind me now that will come out first before the two-seater that's in the other jig comes out because there's so much more work in a two-seater. So I expect 810, within about two months' time, our forward fuse line is going to be completely finished. But I think we're then going to be waiting about another seven or eight weeks for this jig to become available before the back end can go on, which is why when you've seen when we've gone around that we're working on the wing sections and everything else so yeah. we can keep the project moving on in different elements and just pick up on the availability when we can. It also buys me a bit more time because there's still some information from the camera equipment that we're not quite 100% sure of yet. And therefore, what I'm trying to do is, in that space of time, to make sure that the guys have had the information in advance, because I've got loads of time to do research and a huge amount of material to use. Um, but what I can then do is I can feed that into the system. The bits can get made in advance or found or patterned, um, and it's there on the shelf so that when these guys come to put it together, all the information's there and we're not suddenly waiting for a week because we haven't got an answer to a particular question. So, um, but yeah, it's a beautiful thing to behold. It's a work of art. It's almost a shame yeah. to cover it in paint. <laughs> but um, you can see where the money goes now. And often I, I bought them, we have a, a, a wonderful chap on the project who oversees all the, all the finances and everything else to make sure that we're spending everything correctly and as efficiently as we can. Um, and I think he wasn't quite sure about how much goes into all these until he came down and saw the workmanship and actually thought we're, we're getting a pretty good deal yeah. for the amount of work and hours that goes into this uh, for what it actually costs. So, um, but like I say, the more original that we can incorporate into it, the better. Um, and you know, we've got all our camera stuff that obviously has to go into the bottom. So that's, that's gonna overly complicate an already complicated situation. But I mean, these guys, they've made so many fuselages now. Um, they're the most clued up people going on all of this. Um, and uh, it couldn't be in better hands to be built. Well, our huge thanks to Tony Hoskins and to Paul Calshaw and everyone at Airframe Assemblies for giving us such a privileged behind-the-scenes tour. Do visit the project's website, www.spitfireaa810.co.uk, to learn more and to find out how you can support it and help fund the National Monument to the PRU.